This morning I want to do a couple of things a little bit differently than normal. The first is, and you don't have to shout hallelujah, but I'm going to attempt to preach a slightly shorter sermon this morning, okay? For a couple of reasons. One is I went really long last week. I shuddered when I saw the actual length uh, (laughs) afterwards, um, and I owe you some of that time back. But um, more importantly, um, so you have ample time to, as Jeff said, peruse the ministry tables. You are invited to stick around for a few minutes. There will be no pressure on you. Um, At least I'm, this is me, um, you know, telling our table hosts, don't pressure the people as they come by. Let the Holy Spirit do the work of of inviting and directing our hearts. Um, So the only pressure you're going to get from here this morning from anybody is from me, and it's just simply the pressure of an invitation. You're welcome to stick around and just take take in the tables. Um, some of them, maybe many of them, have candy. And I was informed by my son this morning that he wishes there was candy every Sunday in the worship center. Um, I can't promise you that, but I can promise you that today there is. So check out the candy and stick around afterwards. The... Um, the other thing I'm going to do that's a little bit different is, and this is something I've done before, it's not new, but it's not my normal tradition, um, I'm going to offer a little bit of an extended introduction. So the sermon as a whole will be shorter, but the introduction will be longer than normal. I want to take a few minutes, and I know we've kind of done this uh, a time or two over the recent weeks, but I want to do it once more, um, and, and in a little bit different way this morning. I want to take a few minutes to look once again at the overall structure of the Gospel of Luke, but this time, especially as it pertains to um, the other Gospels of Matthew and Mark. So we've noted already before that Luke, all the way back in the first verse, really, the first few verses of his Gospel indicates that his Gospel is based upon eyewitness accounts. Okay, so he did, he did his due diligence, he interviewed, he researched, he, he made sure all of his facts were in order, but a lot of his work um, in one of his key sources appears to be uh, the Gospel of Mark. So he, he took Mark's Gospel, which was earlier than, earlier than his, and he took it into consideration, and he even took the, the, the general outline of Mark in producing his own work. And Matthew did the same thing. That's why they are called the synoptic gospels, which is a, a contraction of sorts of two words that mean same appearance. They, they appear the same, and they're very similar because they all followed a general uh, outline. But Luke deviates from Mark right around where we were last Sunday. If you were here last week, we were in chapter 9. You recall how I talked about how that was sort of a, a pivot point in the Gospel of Mark. It, it, signi- it signifies the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's now turned the corner. He's getting ready to head towards Jerusalem. And there's this shift that takes place in the Gospel. And Luke, at this point, not only shifts co- sort of Jesus' trajectory, Luke deviates at this point from Mark. And he, he proceeds to give us about eight chapters of teachings that you won't find in the other gospel. You remember in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, as the time drew near for him, Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus, in his ministry, has shifted, and he's laser-focused on Jerusalem. That's what is, is what preoccupies the mind and heart of Jesus, and that's what preoccupies the essence of this gospel as it moves through these chapters of teaching. It's, it's this shift, this movement. And as Jesus 
begins to head to Jerusalem and he's more focused on Jerusalem and, and everything is oriented towards that, we begin to see that increasingly his actions and his teachings and his expectations are at odds with his disciples. We saw that a little bit last week. You see it more and more and more as the gospel develops. And not just at odds with his disciples, but eventually at odds with the crowds. Those same people that have been following him around and welcoming, welcoming him everywhere he goes, they're still there all the way in, in chapter 18 where, where we will be this morning. The crowds are still there. In fact, the crowds even, have even grown. But as the crowd sizes have grown, their understanding of who Jesus is and their expectations of what he has come to do have, have gotten, well, not smaller, they've gotten farther from where he is. There's, there's this complete and total misunderstanding of who he actually is and what his message about the kingdom of God is all about. And the kingdom of God has been Luke's central theme all along. And in his description here of Jesus's final approach to Jerusalem in chapters 18 and 19, where we will spend the next two Sundays. So if you want to go and turn to chapter 18, you're welcome to do that now. We'll be at the end of that chapter, and the next week we'll be at the beginning of chapter 19. And as, as Luke is, is arriving here in this point of his narrative, where Jesus is making his final approach into Jerusalem, we see this theme of the kingdom of God intensified, and made even more explicit than what we have already seen so far in his gospel. Jesus himself is going to be in answering some of the, the most fundamental questions about the kingdom of God. For example, who does the kingdom of God even belong to? Well, chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. One day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, here we go, the disciples, they're, they're completely wrong here. When the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. And what does Jesus say? Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. This is who the kingdom of God belongs to. Well, who will find it hard to enter? Well, the very next verse, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And the very next story in the gospel is what? It's, it's, the, it's the rich man, isn't it? The one who has kept all the commandments since he was a child, who is the, the model disciple, the, the, the picture of what you would think Jesus was looking for in forming his little band of followers. And yet, he is the exhibit A of verse 17, the one who cannot receive the kingdom of God like a child. Why? Because he's still clinging to something, isn't he? He's clinging to his wealth. He cannot, it's the one thing in his life that's more important than Jesus. And it says in verse 24, when Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Who, who is coming in? Who will find it hard to enter? And then you have the stories of the blind man and the tax collector that demonstrate how the king deals with the needs of his people and what the essential nature of the kingdom is and, um, and, and so on and so forth. And, and what the, what the, um, how to enter into the kingdom. What's the actual mechanism by which I move from outside the kingdom and move into the kingdom? 
And of course, in chapter 19, verse 11 and following, you have the parable of the ten servants that addresses the, the question of when the kingdom will be established. It's this, it's this theme that just is leaping out of the page for us. It's, it's, it's the one that if you, if you miss it at this point, there's no way you're going to get it. And Luke wants the reader, that is you and I, to understand what the crowds had already started to grasp in some form or fashion. And that is, well, Jesus is the new king of Israel. He is the new king of Israel. And that's for that reason. You have massive crowds welcoming him into the city in chapter 19, verse 36, crying out blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke wants the reader to see what the, the crowds saw, but he wants the reader to see it rightly, unlike the crowds. He wants the reader to see that Jesus is indeed the king and he indeed is bringing a kingdom, but he wants the reader to see it rightly. The crowds, well, at this point, they're really no different than the disciples were back in chapter nine. You remember last week we said they had the right words, but the wrong definition. They're welcoming a king. They're anticipating a kingdom. They have the right vocabulary but their understanding is all wrong. They could not have understood him more wrongly. No, the kingdom will not appear suddenly. No, the kingdom will not be just for the Jewish people. No, it's not, at least initially, a political kingdom. And its coming will not be by way of killing, but by dying. And its citizens will be the least likely from among them. And with that, we turn now to our sermon text. At the end of chapter 18, with the first of two of those most unlikely of people to enter into the kingdom of God, which will be the focal point for our next two weeks in completion of this sermon series. Look at me, look with me at Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35 down through the end of the chapter. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the noise of a crowd going past, he asked what was happening. They told him that Jesus the Nazarene was going by. So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. The people in front yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. As the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see, and he followed Jesus, praising God, and all who saw it, Praised God too. I want to make three short points this morning about uh, our blind friend here this morning. And if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you the three points right now. And then we're going to go back and we're going to spend a few minutes in each one. The first point is uh, the blind man is a picture of human need. A picture of human need. Secondly, the blind man is an example of saving faith. So a picture of human need an example of saving faith, and thirdly, he is the template 
for a model disciple. Number one, a picture of human need. What from our text, if you have your Bibles open, um, I'm going to ask if, if it's possible to put verse 35 back up on the screen there for me. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, you can look at the screen. But if you have your Bibles, look with me at verse 35 and answer the question, not what's in the other Gospels. The other Gospels uh, have information about this encounter, and they share a little bit, some little bit different details. Um, I just want you to look at your Bibles at what Luke says here in verse 35. What can we say from this verse that we know about this man? What's the first thing that, that, you, that you can say you know about this man from verse 35? You can just say it out loud. He's blind. Okay, he's blind. He's blind. He is severely disabled. I, I, I was asked the other day by my kids. They've asked me this question before. It's sort of like one of those would you rather kinds of questions. They love asking me these questions. And I said, look, I've answered this one before. Would you rather be blind or deaf? And for me, it's, 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 there's no question, I would rather be deaf. Now, there may be someone in here who's hard of hearing or has family that has, that has deafness. We have uh, my wife's side of the family. There's, there's some folks that have some of those issues. And I've seen firsthand how hard that is and the, the complications that produces in life and in relationships and employment and all those things. I get it. But man, I would rather, still rather be able to see than hear. I can't imagine going through life completely blind. So that's the first thing we see about, about this man. What's the second thing that we see him doing? What's the next word after blind? He's begging. Okay, so he's a beggar. And the two, are, I believe, are connected, right? The blindness has resulted in, in begging. He is utterly dependent on the, just the mercy of other people, the compassion of other people to provide for his basic needs. But someone said he's sitting, and that is correct, that he's, he's sitting. But did you notice where? Where is he sitting? Outside the city. He's sitting beside the road. So you picture a road that's entering into a city, people traveling in and out, going to and fro, and here he is on the side outside the city. Now, what's significant about the city of Jericho? I was spending some time uh, just brushing my, my knowledge of Jericho back up again this week. Um, did you know, by the way, that many consider Jericho to be the oldest town in the, in the world? That's amazing. I, I had no idea that, that, that Jericho laid claim to the oldest town on earth. It's also, by the way, the lowest. It's over 800 feet below sea level. Isn't that fascinating? So just a little bit of trivia there for you. But more importantly, for the sake of our text here and for the sake of understanding sort of what's going on in, in, in this whole story, Jericho served as a gateway town. And I've pr prepared for you a map <laughs> I know it's like super, I didn't make this, I found it, and I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll share that this morning. Is it really tiny? Oh, okay, so you can see it, okay. Jericho's in red there in the middle. Look at the location of Jericho there uh, in relation to everything else. So it's sitting there sort of at the, the southern end of the Jordan Valley. Um, it's just north of the Dead Sea, and its location was such that it was sort of a, a pass-through location for those either coming down north from Samaria or regions of Galilee, which is what Jesus has done here. He has left Galilee. He's probably traveled down the eastern side of the river and has crossed over the river in, into Jericho, or people just coming from the east in general who are crossing. People who are heading to Jerusalem would have passed through Jericho. It's a gateway town to that city. 
And it offered weary travelers something of an oasis of rest. Given its abundance of natural springs and date palms, it was sort of like this this place of just um, lavish delight. You You could replenish yourself there. Now knowing this, and then locating where our blind begging friend is, it's not too much of a stretch to see that in some way here, he represents not just humanity in its physical need, but humanity in its spiritual need. Think about it. He's, he's blind, he's helpless, he's needy, and how are, what's the condition of man in his natural state apart from Christ? Well, we're spiritually blind. We, we are spiritually dead. We are unable on our own, in our own strength and it, with our own capacities to, to move towards God. We, we need a touch. We need a healing. We need some sort of rescue, some sort of provision from outside of ourselves to, to help us to move towards God. He sits beside the road which leads to rest. He's an afterthought at best and a nuisance at worst to the passerby. And in the same way, you and I are at enmity with God, aren't we? But in our natural state, we are in rebellion against God. We, we stand outside the, the life-giving communion that God offers. We are on a road, another road, not one that leads to life. We are on a road that leads to judgment and death. And for those with eyes to see, pun intended, the blind man here is a picture in some form or fashion of humanity separated from God. That's verse 35. Well, let's go to verse 36. In verse 36, we begin to see that he is, yes, he is a picture of human need, but secondly, he is an example of saving faith. I love a twist of irony. And you're not gonna find a greater example of it than perhaps right here in in this account. Because in a twist of irony, the man who can't see is the one who sees better than everyone else. What does the crowd see when it looks at Jesus? Well, it's, it's right there in, in our passage as the blind man hears all the hubbub and he, he asks what's going on because physically he's unable to tell what's happening. In verse 37, it says, they told him what? That Jesus, the Nazarene, was going by. Is that true? Is that a a correct identification of of who Jesus is? Well, sure. I mean, I'm sure in in a a busy busy town, and eventually in Jerusalem, in a busy city, that the the name Jesus was probably a, a fairly common name. And so Jesus of Nazareth helps people to identify a little bit more who this particular Jesus is. But there's something I don't know, something profoundly mundane and ordinary about their identification of him to the the blind man. It's just sort of like name, rank, serial number, right? Here's here's the most basic information that I'm willing to give you about the the person you're asking about. It's almost as if they, they supply sort of the basics about Jesus, but then all the rest is left for them to fill in the blanks. Now, maybe I'm misreading things here. I don't know. 
But I think there's something about that, especially when we look at the context of what Luke has been telling us about the people's misunderstanding about the identity and the mission and the purpose of Jesus, the king, and what what the kingdom of God is all about. They don't get it. Yes, he's Jesus the Nazarene, but what else can we say about him? Well, they will fill in the blanks themselves. They will, yes, he's the king of Israel, but we will decide what that looks like, what his kingdom will be like, what he is here to do, how I stand to benefit from from what he is going to accomplish. And people today are not that much different, are they? And when the blind man looks at Jesus, what does he see? Does he see Jesus the Nazarene? No. What does he see? He sees something deeper. He sees that this Nazarene is, in verse 38, the son of David, which of course is a, a messianic title with roots going as far back as 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promises David, Israel's greatest king, that one day he would raise up one from among his offspring who would have a kingdom that would last forever. Now, if you and I had been reading Luke from chapter 1, and maybe it was the first time we had ever read the gospel, and we, we read Luke's introduction, what Luke had to say there, we as readers, you know, by the time we came to chapter 18, well, we would have already, you know, been briefed on Jesus' Davidic descent. We would have known sort of where he came from in terms of his genealogy. We would have remembered the messianic overtones associated with the angel's announcement about his, his coming into the world back to Mary in chapter one. We, we would have had this background information thanks to how Luke crafted his gospel. But listen, other than that, this is the first time in the entire gospel of Luke where anyone else identifies him in such a way. No one else sees him as son of David. No one else is is making that level of connection between who he is and what God's promises in the past were. No one else is seeing that, that yes, he he is a king and he's receiving a kingdom. He's bringing a kingdom. He embodies a kingdom. But what's the nature of it? Now, I'm sure the blind man didn't see it all, but he saw more than anyone else did. And it begs the question, who are the real blind ones in the story? Who's really blind here? Well, it's everyone else who saw Jesus but didn't see. Everyone else whose curiosity never becomes confession. And there's a lot of people, perhaps even some of you here this morning, who have much curiosity, but it has never resulted in confession. In other words, you are interested in Jesus, you have ideas about Jesus, and you, you project onto Jesus sort of your own perspectives and your own desires and expectations, your own beliefs. You, Jesus is something or someone to you, but maybe it's not necessarily the Jesus that is. Maybe at some level, all of us are guilty of that. Maybe, maybe those of you who have walked with, with him your entire life are still tempted to project onto him your own view of who he is and what he should do in your life. 
You are retaining the right to decide what the nature of his kingdom actually is and what your place in that kingdom is and how you should benefit from that kingdom and what its, what its mandate is upon you or upon the world. We, we are all at some level perhaps guilty of what the people are guilty of here. But the blind man, at least in Luke's gospel, the nameless blind man sees him as he really is. And it didn't require physical eyesight. He sees him with a different set of eyes. The eyes of the heart. And I would contend he saw because he had heard. He heard. Maybe I'm about to convince myself that I would rather have my ears instead of my eyes. (laughs) Clearly, the blind man had heard the scriptures. Not just, not just the sound waves of people reading the scriptures passed into his ear canal. He heard with his heart. He was opened at the level of his heart in this, the deepest recesses of who he was, in the inner sanctum of his person. He was open and receptive to the truth of God's word. And all of God's word, whether from Genesis or Revelation, all of it points to Jesus. And he clearly had heard what the scriptures had to say. But he had also heard what other people had said that Jesus had said and done. And he connected the two in such a way that he could end up seeing with the eyes of faith what no one else could see. You know, it's amazing what can happen when the, when the truth of God's word proclaimed is combined with the witness of your own experience. Do not underestimate the power that lies in, in your God's word and your testimony together. Because in this story, God's word and, and the testimony of people whose lives have been touched by God came together in such a way that it was able to open the eyes of faith in the hearts of the spiritually blind. It's no wonder Paul says in Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The good news of what? All the good news of what the scriptures have had to say about Christ and the good news of what I have, of what he's done for me. That's what a messenger does. That's what a witness does. That is what a testimony is. It is the beautiful blend of God's truth and your experience. And as the blind man is making these connections in his heart, what does he end up doing in response? Well, he calls upon the name of the Lord. And when people seek to silence him, he calls out all the louder. Maybe there's someone here this morning whose heart has never called out to Jesus in faith. That one I mentioned a moment ago whose curiosity has never moved to confession. Maybe you see, but don't see. Maybe the Jesus in your mind is one of your own imagining. Well, let me tell you, and I hope you will receive this, salvation does not come by us clinging to our own ideas about Christ. But as Paul will say a few verses later in Romans 10, Salvation comes by hearing the good news about Christ. It is the ear that has the direct line to the heart. 
And you need to come to a place in your life, if you're serious at all, about anything pertaining to your, your eternity, your spirit, who God is, what salvation is. If you have any hope of ever getting to the bottom of those things, it will begin with you making the choice to open your heart up to the truth of God's word. And that's something that the Holy Spirit is working to do even now. That's what he does is he superintends the proclamation of the word. He's not just helping me, he's helping you. I wouldn't dare step foot in a pulpit and, and, and you know, try to explain a single word of this without the aid of the Holy Spirit. In my, in my flesh, I'm incapable of understanding a, a word on the page. I'm incapable of, of proclaiming it to you in, in any meaningful way whatsoever. And in the same way, you are incapable of receiving it without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Because apart from him, we're blind and we're stubborn and we're rebellious and, and our hearts are hard. And yet the Holy Spirit comes and he softens the heart and he enables the will and he opens the eyes and the ears and will you let him? Will you let him? Maybe you've never cried out to Jesus because you have, well, the Jesus that you have conjured up is not one worth crying out to. He's not the Jesus that is, but the one that you have manufactured. Maybe you haven't cried out to him for fear of the crowds. You know, the blind man, he's undaunted by the, by the crowds. I mean, after all, he spent his whole life rejected by them. He's not pictured here as being, you know, helped along the path to that oasis of replenishment and renewal. He's not surrounded by people who are affirming him and, and speaking truth into his life and loving on him and providing for his needs. No, he's relegated to the side. He's, he's abandoned to just wither away. So he's undaunted by their, their demands to shut up. But some of you have lived your whole life surrounded by accolades people looking up to you. All of your needs have been met. I mean, how, how does this message even preach to an American church where we, we have everything we need? We don't really think we need Jesus, really. Maybe when something bad happens, I get a bad diagnosis from the doctor and suddenly I'm the biggest Christian in the church or I lose my job or the economy tanks. I want to say something so bad about the economy right now, but I'm not going to do it. Suddenly, we're, we're people of faith, aren't we? But the second we encounter opposition or just the fear of a peer, you know, silencing us or ridiculing us or when the spotlight is suddenly on us and, and we, have to, we have to actually stand for God around, you know, in the midst of hostility and fear of reprisal and perhaps even persecution, what happens? We're quiet as a church mouse. Maybe today is the day for you and for me to choose what matters most, the favor of God or the favor of man. Paul promises, once again in chapter 10 of Romans, that anyone who trusts in Christ will never be disgraced. For all of our fears about our peers or the mob 
or the culture. All of our insecurities, all of our concerns, what could happen if I speak out for Jesus, if I call out to him, if I live my life for him, if I stand on the truth of his word, for all of our fears, the promise is those who confess Christ and trust in Christ will never be disgraced. And we see that truth worked out right here in our text. Even as the crowds seek to silence the blind man, what happens in verse 40? What does Jesus do? How is he different from the crowds? He's not just another passerby. Yes, he's laser focused on Jerusalem. Don't miss the trajectory of his ministry, his heart, his life. The, the culmination of everything is, is on a hill with a cross. But he's not just a passerby. He's not just a man on some other. This is his mission. This is an anticipation of the fulfillment of it. It's all part of the same mission of Jesus. He's not just passing by, doing his thing. You know, this, this guy has needs. Someone else will meet at another time. You know, he's, he's lived this long. He'll live a little bit longer. He'll be okay. The man's not just another face as we've identified in previous stories. No, what does Jesus do? It says he stops. He stops and he turns and he calls for the man and he asks him a question. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ask a, qu ask a question out of ignorance? Is Jesus the most like oblivious person in the history of the world? Bring him to me, this very obviously needy blind man. What do you want me to do for you? Does Jesus need a visit from Captain Obvious to swoop in with his cape and like, Jesus, really? Look, look at him. Are you actually looking at him? And I would say, the man who saw Jesus, Jesus saw him. He saw him in a way that no one else ever did or ever would again. And the question is not birthed out of ignorance or him being oblivious, the question is intended to honor him. It honors him. That, that the king, the king would go out of his way to meet the most insignificant person imaginable right where he is and ask him what he needs. I can't think of anything that compares to that. The closest thing I could come up with was a, a wounded veteran in a military hospital who gets a visit from the president. That's the closest thing I could go to. And, you know, photo ops aside and optics and political optics aside, I'm talking about the, the president, the commander-in-chiefs, the commanders-in-chief, who aren't there for themselves, but are truly there for the, the wounded. They're there to say, thank you. How, what can I do for you? Just the, the dignity and the honor, the interpersonal expression of gratitude and value, the statement that this person matters. They're not just another crippled body in a bed. They're persons who made a sacrifice and Jesus 
Something like that, but greater. The king takes a moment to pay honor, not because the man has done anything, but just by virtue of who he is. You have value, my son, because you exist, because I created you. You were created in the image of God. You have intrinsic worth and value and meaning. You're not just an inconvenience to me. You're not just a statistic. You're not just another voice clamoring for my attention. No, you are one who has an identity that is legitimate and definable and ultimately finds its truest expression in relationship to me. And this is always, 100% of the time, what Jesus does in the life of those who call out to him in faith. It's at the heart of what salvation is. Yes, we're thankful for this sort of idea that salvation is, you know, Jesus paying this price that I couldn't pay. He died a death that I deserved. He, you know, he's ransomed me. I'm so thankful for all those sort of legal ways of these forensic ways of understanding salvation. Thank you for what you did for me. Great. He is, he's taken my debt. He's, he's wiped, you know, the ledger is wiped clean. You know, he's cast my sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Uh, Yes, it's all biblical and it's all wonderful, but it's not all. It's not all. Because he could have done all those things for you and never had a personal connection to you or you to him. And I think a lot of Christians, that's the sum total of their Christian experience. I went to a place of prayer, the transaction occurred, I'm good to go, God's satisfied, we can now coexist and not be at odds with each other anymore. And it could be the most impersonal, you know, absence of a relationship type of thing you can imagine. That is not salvation. Salvation is when we are brought into saving relationship with the God who is a communion of persons. That is, that is life. That is salvation. That is what was lost in the garden and what is being recovered through the cross a life-saving relationship. And Jesus always personalizes the individual. He hasn't come to just give us all the perceived desires of our hearts. He has come to make all things new. And I'm just blown away just like I was with the, the woman with the hemorrhage. you remember that? He sets her apart from the crowd. He calls her his daughter. And that's what he does for any and all who call upon the name of the Lord. Son of David, have mercy on me. And what happens next in verse 43, provides us finally with our last point, and it's the shortest one. <laughs> the template for a model disciple. Look at the sequence of things it says there in verse 43 that happen. The man is healed by faith. He is healed. He follows Jesus. He praises God. I can't think of a better summary 
of a disciple than that. Oh, and what happens as a result of this encounter, this life-transforming encounter with Jesus? Well, everyone else praised God too. Look at the impact his life had. He could not be more different than the 12. <laughs> Who, by the way, Luke says in verse 34, one verse before where we began this morning in our sermon text, by telling us that they, the 12, didn't understand a single thing that was going on. Not a thing. They could not have been more clueless. And then here you have this guy, the least, the least likely among them, this picture of human need, he becomes the example of faith in the template of discipleship. He gets it. This outcast, this broken, helpless, needy, lamentable soul, the most unlikely of, in, of figures, he gets it. And right there on the outskirts of Jericho, he found in Jesus an oasis of grace. The true rest for his soul. The replenishment. The, the, re, the re, rejuvenation. The life that he could find nowhere else in the desert of sin. And this gateway, at this gateway village, this blind man, who had been off the side of the road, well, he entered a door that leads to life. And friends, that door is open to you today as well. This is the invitation. You are invited, wherever you are in your journey of faith, whether you have been the longtime faithful disciple already, or whether you're just sort of flirting with the idea of what it means to follow Jesus, the invitation to us all is to find in Jesus the door to life, in an oasis of grace. Would you put your faith in him today? Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this ministry fair Sunday, for all that's going to take place in the moments to come. I pray that you would bless, you would guide, you would speak to the hearts of your people, that we would, that we would be open to what we hear you say as we respond to the sermon, and then as we transition into a time of Looking at these tables, these are not just meant to be stations of decoration or, or you know, places to get candy. Th these are visible expressions of the life of this church. So help us to know where we plug in. Help us to get to know the church a little bit better than perhaps we did before. And um, we just pray that through it all that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.